Kneel before Zod! You can't go! All the plants are gonna die! I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil! Don't touch it! The name's Pliskin. No! Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Buddy Buddy, released December 11th, 1981. It was written by Billy Wilder and I.A.L. Diamond, based on a play and story by Francis Weber, directed by Billy Wilder and released by Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. Francis Weber's 1971 play, Le Contrat, or The Contract, was adapted first into a 1973 French-Italian black comedy called Le Merdeur, or The Troublemaker, which was released in America as A Pain in the Ass. The impressive box office set in motion an American adaptation, and producer Jay Weston obtained the rights with an intent to lure Billy Wilder out of retirement. Wilder has said that he and co-writer I.A.L. Diamond were already working on another project when this was pitched to them. He also claimed that while eager to get back to work, he would not have signed on to this particular project had Weston not already attached Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon. Wilder credits the subpar quality of the script to a rushed production schedule, which only allowed three months to the screenwriting. Three months? <laughs> <laughs> that seems like plenty of time to yeah. make a better script than this. Yeah. Original playwright and screenwriter Weber looked over Wilder's finished draft and admits he saw flaws but deferred to Wilder's legendary expertise as a filmmaker. Weeks into production, Wilder had already concluded that Mathau was miscast as the hitman character, suggesting in his place a Charles Bronson or Clint Eastwood type that would provide a greater contrast to Lemon's comedic sensibilities. The hotel's exteriors were a facade built across the street from the Riverside Courthouse, and the interior was the historic Heritage Mission Inn Hotel, which is also in Riverside, but not anywhere near the courthouse. Gene Siskel called this the worst film of the year. What? Oh my God, he's so yeah. wrong about that. It's not true. He but must not have seen the rest of them. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's a lot of them that, uh, that deserve that over this. It was remade in 2008 under the American title of the original 73 film, A Pain in the Ass, and there's also an Indian remake called Bamboo. We open on palm trees. After a minute, the camera tilts down on a mailman played by Walter Matthau moving through a neighborhood making deliveries. At the mailbox of L. Schuster, he stuffs in a package and several envelopes. Schuster comes out of his house in a robe to collect the mail. He tears the edge off the package and sparks fly out, so he drops it in the lawn and it explodes drawing the attention of the entire neighborhood, but down the street, mailman Mathau whips out a cigar to celebrate a job well done. We see a baby carriage, and we hear a baby crying. Yeah. And I'm not sure if it's meant to be that the baby is in the carriage, but if it was, that means that it was outside completely unattended. Yeah, that sounds right. Near the bomb. What is this, Sweden? Wait, is that where they do that? What? I don't know, it's one of those Nordic countries. It's, where it's you get totally, the baby box? No, it's totally normal to leave your babies outside. Like you don't take that's them. That's just the American side. You don't take them into restaurants and stuff like that. Like you just leave them in the baby carriage and leave them outside. Hmm. You just leash them to like the bike rack or something. No, you like literally just park them all out there in a row and they're fine. You just what leave the them heck? there. You're just like, which one of these is? I'm pretty sure this <laughs> you, is ours. You get a valet ticket. So it's just like. <laughs> 
On the news later, we learn that a local land fraud scandal has been under investigation and that the man we just saw explode was Leopold Schuster, an important witness to the case. Two more such witnesses have been placed in police protection, which is why you're supposed to kill all the witnesses at the same time. You hire three hitmen, mm -hmm. you kill them all at once. Mathau watches the story on a diner television and then pays for his meal and leaves. We see a plainclothes police officer, played by Dana Elkar, accompanied by four uniformed officers walking up to the front door of one of the witnesses. Insanely, the witness, Barney Pritzig, answers the door and confirms his identity for these strangers. <laughs> Elkar introduces himself as Captain Hubris, his actual name, and explains that they are his security detail, and Pritzig is ecstatic to see them. They've been sent here by the district attorney's office. He waves them all into his house. Would you believe I was afraid of bringing the milk and the paper? Hubris assigns his officers to every entrance while Pritzig takes the milk to the kitchen. Seconds later, he's dead at his kitchen table and Hubris smells the milk. Cyanide. Just like in that MacGyver episode with yeah. the lepidopterist where he can smell the cyanide. Right. The bitter Dan almonds. Dana Elkar has a nose for it. Looks like cyanide poisoning. Yeah. I thought he took a pill before I went out. Maybe you just get a little whiff. <laughs> uh, was that the one where um, they get like the photo developer fluid to yes, make the Yes, in the mall. Yeah. yeah, it's the same one. I think Fraternity of Thieves, where where Elkar's son gets arrested, right? Mm. Or Pete's son gets arrested, not Elkar's. <laughs> <laughs> We cut to Mathau driving a whole damn milk truck down the street like that was necessary. Driving a regular car later, he listens to a news story about Pritzig's death on the radio. These two shots could easily have been combined. I don't know why he wasn't just listening to the radio in the milk truck. Well, because it was a little too yeah. immediate for yeah, a news Yeah, but report. I mean, like, he still could have just been driving it later. I don't know. Maybe they're pretty expensive. I assume he just stole a milk well, truck. Well, I have a feeling he had to ditch the milk truck almost yeah. immediately. There's a dead milkman somewhere <laughs> in the neighborhood. Yeah. The last witness, Rudy Disco Gambola, has just had his security detail doubled again. Mathau pulls into a gas station and tries to use the restroom, but the door is locked. Eventually, the occupant comes out, and we get our first Jack Lemon Walter Mathau scene. Sorry, I was throwing up. <laughs> I had a nervous stomach. They say it's psychosomatic because of my wife. I separated three months this Thursday. Bye. Mathau just stares down the overshare without any discernible reaction. He enters the restroom and immediately switches to the ladies' room, probably because of the vomit. Driving away, Lemon hits play on a tape deck in his passenger seat, leaning against a bouquet of flowers. He notices the man from the gas station, Mathau, driving down the road past him and honks his horn to say hi. Again, Mathau gives him nothing and drives around him to move on down the road. We see Mathau pull up and park across the street from the Riverside County Courthouse. Then he pulls into the garage at the Ramona Hotel. We cut to a press conference about the protection of the last witness in this case, and bizarrely, every reporter is trying to get the man killed. Just exactly where are you hiding this guy, Gambola? When are you bringing him in? In Vegas at 7 to 5, Gambola won't live to testify. You've already lost two witnesses. What makes you think you won't lose this one? Hubris swats the microphone out of a reporter's hands and tells them to screw off and that Gambola will make it to court. At the front desk of the hotel, Mathau speaks with the receptionist, played by Ghostbusters hotel manager Michael Ensign. Yeah, he moved up. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's just the front desk and now he's a... Uh, he he's made it to management. $5,000? I had no idea to be so much I won't pay it. I believe he and Dana Elkar play business partners in All of Me later, so it's neat that they have multiple films in common before their MacGyver episodes together. 
Mathau is checking in as Mr. Trabuco and has evidently asked for front of the hotel, not too high up, which wasn't suspicious to them. Right. <laughs> the bellhop tries to chat up Mr. Trabuco, but Mathau has no words for him. The kid mentions something about a recent convention that brought a bunch of weirdos to the hotel, and he had to sneak prostitutes out of the building down the laundry chute. As they wait for the elevator, Trabuco wordlessly purchases a cigar from a stand in the lobby, and the woman seems annoyed that he won't speak. On the way down the hall to his room, he notices the laundry chute to the first floor. Inside the room, the bellhop opens the windows, and we get a clear shot of the front of the courthouse. Across the street, he can see hubris and dozens of cops on the steps, as well as a half dozen sharpshooters on the roof. Trabuco dials a long-distance number and speaks to a bunch of people with colors for names. Hello, Mr. Green. Oh, Mr. White. Let me speak to Mr. Brown. Hello, Mr. Brown. This is the dentist calling. Do you guys recall the last time we had a character referred to as the dentist? Were they actually a dentist? Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, one of, was it one of the... Was it Four Seasons guys at Dentist? More uh, recent than that. I was going to say On Golden Pond. Yeah, last oh. week on Golden Pond. $40 for a filling. <laughs> this is obviously reminiscent and perhaps a specific reference to the taking of Pelham 123, where the villains all took colors as nicknames, facing off against Walter Matthau. Pelham is the film that gave Tarantino the idea to use color code names in Reservoir Dogs. In code, Trabuco negotiates a $10,000 increase to his rate because of the extra security around the third witness. He refers to the man as a rotten tooth and suggests that this third tooth is not a simple extraction but a root canal. He flips open his briefcase to reveal a disassembled sniper rifle and goes about snapping it together. Back at the front desk, we see Jack Lemon's character, Mr. Clooney, checking in. He's much more conversational with the bellhop. Before the kid leaves, Mr. Clooney asks for a bucket of ice and two glasses for champagne. Trabuco listens to this conversation through the adjoining door between their rooms and realizes it's the same guy from the gas station. Clooney phones home to speak with his wife Celia and announces his location. Apparently he's nearer to her than he usually is and he expected that she'd come down here to join him for champagne. It sounds from the half of the conversation we can hear that Celia is totally over her husband, and he seems blindsided by this. He's sure there's still a chance, but she's less sure. I'm guessing he did something awful, because he keeps telling her he's willing to forgive and forget, as if he wants her to say the same. After he hangs up, he says goodbye to her. Clooney starts looking around the room for rope strong enough to hang himself with. He sits down at a desk in the corner to write his suicide note. He yanks the rope down from the curtains and then throws it over a pipe in the bathroom as a noose. Mathau finally finishes assembling the gun when Clooney finally gets to the last step of his suicide and realizes he has to pee first. He takes off the noose for a quick piss and then wraps himself back up again. Really quick. It's yeah. like it's like three seconds long. It's one of those nervous pees where mm. he didn't really have to pee. He was just like, oh my God, I got to do an important thing. He jumps off the toilet to hang himself and simply disassembles the pipes above his head by yanking them apart with his weight. The bellhop arrives at the door with his ice and champagne glasses and is shocked to see the flooded bathroom and nearly unconscious Mr. Clooney in the bathtub. He tries in vain to reconnect the pipes, but the water pressure is too high and shoots all over the room. Next door, Trabuco disassembles his gun back into the suitcase and then tucks it in a closet before heading next door to ask what's all the racket. He finds an angry bellboy in Clooney's room, and Clooney is sitting drenched in the bathtub. Trabuco stops the bellboy from calling the police, insisting this man has enough problems, and promises to take care of it himself. He tips the kid to keep quiet, and he leaves the room. Trabuco is confused to learn that Clooney has made this attempt because of a woman, 
specifically Celia, his wife of 12 years, his second wife after he left the first one for Celia. Bizarrely, earlier Lemon Mathau team up The Odd Couple also starts with Jack Lemon checking into a hotel to kill himself in answer to splitting with his wife after exactly 12 years of marriage. Weird coincidence. And that's not a Billy Wilder movie. So yeah. it's like, oh, we only have three months to write this movie. What's that one that everybody liked? Yeah. <laughs> Let's just uh, <laughs> copy the first six pages. Right. Yeah. Gave up everything. The three kids, the house, and the insurance. I owned a piece of the rock. And the two cars, and the Betamax, and... Now Celia's left me. That's tough. For some phony doctor. It's like a doctor... He gives Dr. Zuckerbrot's file to Trabuco, and the cover says, Institute for Sexual Fulfillment, with a photograph of two nude statues making out. Institute for Sexual Fulfillment. What the fuck is that? <laughs> it's like unexpected to hear Mathau cursing, but I love it for the whole rest of the movie. Yeah. It, it, it was, I, I even made a note. It was like, it was like excellent use of F-bomb if, yeah. if this is the only one that they were allotted. But it's R-rated. So, yeah. 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 All the cursing that Mathau gets to do in this film was director Wilder's attempt to make this a more modern comedy, but it still reads as old-fashioned because that's sure. the only change from what he normally does. Clooney explains that he and his wife work for CBS, and she left to do a story on this phony sexual guru and then fell in love with him. Trabuco finally admits that he doesn't really care about anything Clooney has to say, but he has work to do next door, and if Clooney tries to commit suicide one more time, Trabuco will kill him. Trabuco retrieves the suitcase from his closet, enters the combination again, begins reassembling the gun, and then there's another knock at the adjoining door. He pushes the suitcase under the bed before he answers. This time, Clooney wants Trabuco to call his wife and say he's about to kill himself, and if she wants to stop him, she needs to come here. Trabuco refuses to make the call for him. Clooney talks about all the other implements of suicide he brought along, and Trabuco asks if that includes a handkerchief which he then balls up and stuffs in Clooney's mouth so he can strap him to a chair. Now, I've never understood this. That you can't push it out of your mouth? Yeah. I mean, if you tie it in, then yeah. they're gagged. But if it's yeah. just in their mouth... Uh, yeah. It, like, is this a thing? No, it's yeah, not. Yeah, it's not. It's just for... Try it. It's, Put no. your sock in your mouth. <laughs> Ugh, no. Do it. <laughs> it's. I mean, it's the same thing with uh, duct taping somebody's mouth. That actually doesn't work either. Mm-hmm. The duct tape. You can just, wow, wow, yeah, the duct tape just comes right off, and you, you can go. open your mouth again. Unless you go all the way around the head. Yeah, I suppose that could work. Yeah, I've seen people do that when people are on their phones too much at parties, wrap their phone to their face. Yeah, but it's not gonna it's not gonna keep their mouth shut and stop them from screaming. Mm -hmm. Right. Across the street, the courthouse is still swarming with police, and a pack of cop dogs are walked to the front doors. Hubris speaks with a couple cops on the courthouse steps, and one of them is Ed Bigley Jr. Now they are liable to try some kind of a stunt, a diversion. I don't care if a frigging bomb goes off in the next block. Nobody leaves his post, you understand? Roger. Hubris calls the men guarding the third witness and tells them to keep him on ice until he's due for court around 1.45 p.m. That'll make more sense later. Trabuco goes back to work assembling his gun, and we see the cleaning lady knock on Clooney's door. When she enters, she ignores the man tied to a chair and is annoyed when she sees the mess in the bathroom. She talks about how she doesn't need this job because she and her husband run a Mexican catering business and she shouldn't have to clean up these kinds of messes. If you ever plan to have a party, wear the yellow pages. Under Tijuana Gourmet. It's like, is this supposed to be a joke? It just feels like you Googled a city in Mexico and yeah. put the word gourmet. It's not funny. It could be the name of a company. Outside the bathroom, Clooney hops his chair around trying to get her attention and falls flat on his back. When she's done in the bathroom, 
She leans him forward and he expects she'll listen, but she just leaves. Have a nice day. And I think right before she closes the door, he says, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Which would be the only F-bomb we get from Jack Lemmon in Mm -hmm. the movie. But he's gagged, so it's hard to tell. In the next room, Trabuco is now assembling a tripod for his gun. Clooney gets an idea from the furnace in his room. He flips it on with his foot and then leans his back to the wall so the red-hot coils are close enough to his hands to burn the ropes off. I I, I thought he thought he was trying to get gas into the room to kill himself. Oh, that would make sense too. Like, like he's like he sees the like the little. But furnace. it's an electric furnace. Isn't yeah, it? well, I, yeah, I didn't yeah. realize that until it switched on. I mean, there's no way he could burn these ropes without severely injuring his own right, hands. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And he does seem to hurt them, but he's not reacting like they're hurt enough later in the movie. Yeah, your your skin would be burnt long before those ropes would be yeah. burnt enough for you to rip them apart. You just keep pulling until your hands fall off. There you go. The <laughs> just, rope is fine. Just deglove your hands. Ah! Oh, perfect. Next door, Trabuco can hear him screaming from the pain and tears his gun off the tripod to throw it under the bed. He storms through the adjoining door and finds the room empty. Then he hears honking outside and leans out the window to find Clooney sneaking along the ledge outside the building facing the courthouse. Jesus Christ, all those cops down there, they'll see you. You're good. I want them to see me. Listen, you... He says he's not coming down until Celia comes here to talk to him, so he better get her on the phone. The cops across the street notice Clooney standing on the ledge, but Ed Bigley cop reminds them of Hubris's warning of a distraction, and they don't leave their posts. Trabuco phones the Institute looking for Celia. Dr. Zuckerberg's clinic, ecstasy is our business. What kind of shit is that? When Trabuco tells Zuckerberg Clooney's plan, Zuckerberg, played by Klaus Kinski, identifies this strategy correctly as emotional blackmail and refuses to participate. This is emotional blackmail. And I will absolutely not allow her to submit to it. So my advice to Mr. Clooney is jump. When Clooney asks how it's going, Trabuco lies that she wants Clooney to come to her to speak with her there. Bizarrely, Trabuco offers to drive the man because he has plenty of time to assassinate this witness. Yeah, I did not understand this move. Just send him. Send him off to the place. He's not going to come back here. Yeah, and and even if he does, by the time he gets back, you'll be done. You could already be done, yeah. Um. And we'll see what his plan is, like a little bit later. But yeah. even even that is just it's just stupid. He, Jack Lemon obviously has his own means of transportation. Yeah, they both drove here. We saw two cars earlier. Trabuco packs up his gun and tripod so they can leave on a quick road trip. Before he shuts the suitcase, Trabuco pulls out a handgun and tucks it into his pants. Then he leaves the suitcase in the closet and locks it. Trabuco snags Clooney's suicide note off the desk in the corner before they leave. As they pull out of the parking lot, Clooney finally notices all the cops at the courthouse to protect the witness. On the road officially, Clooney asks his friend's name for the first time. Trabuco. Ah, Trabuco. What kind of name is that? My mother was Turkish, my father was Brazilian. I was born in Detroit. Is that a fact? Close enough. In reality, Matthau was born in New York, his mother was Lithuanian, and his father was Ukrainian. He admits to Clooney that he was briefly married, but now he just leases. When asked for his line of work, he simply says pest control. Oh, they like ants, cockroaches, termites. Something like that. I spray them, I poison them, I shoot them. You shoot termites? Coyotes. I shoot coyotes and skunks and rats. I like this because coyotes and skunks and rats could be yeah. nicknames for different kinds of people. Like, uh, and like, yeah, I, I thought 
that was going to be the lead up to the joke. Yeah. Like he's when he said as soon as he said pest control, it's like it's like I take care of rats. It's yeah. Like, that would have been the joke. Yep. Yeah. And, and you end it there. Yep. Because that's funny. I get, I get my little chuckle. But him explaining termites, rats, you know, yeah. coyotes, coyotes like he, all this other stuff. He, like, it's like, but you're here specifically for a rat. So that makes sense. Leave it at that. We learn here that Clooney works for the censorship board at CBS, but it doesn't really play into much. In the play, he's a shirt salesman. But like I said, it makes no difference to the plot. I don't know why they bothered to change that. Um, I think because there is all later on just so much nudity. Because he makes a special point of saying, you can't have nipples. You can't show nipples at all. Yeah, but and that's just part of this conversation. And then it doesn't play into later. I mean, I well, guess we established that he's a fairly conservative person. Yeah, but then the rest of the movie, there's just like all this toplessness and, and yeah. explicit nudity. Like and, they even like do a close-up of a penis medallion. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like it's like up until this point, the movie's been relatively tame. That's true. But after that line, like all bets are off. They take a left off a desert road towards Sunnyvale, and Clooney is confused by the move. Then, Trabuco pulls off into a dirt road and parks beside a big boulder. He tells Clooney to clear his nerves by throwing up behind a rock, and Clooney thinks this is a great idea. (laughs) I do like that he knows him well enough. He's like, don't you want to throw up first? It's like, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Trabuco starts to pull out a pair of gloves, and it seems clear he's going to kill Clooney out here, and he even tucks the man's suicide note into his jacket to make things look legit. But he's interrupted in this plan by a pair of biker cops escorting a broken down car with a passenger in labor. They ask Trabuco if he can drive the pregnant woman the rest of the way to the hospital. He's obviously not interested in helping, but weirdly, Clooney is totally fine with putting off his conversation with Celia. I feel like it should have been his idea to be like, oh, the clinic is right down the way. Mm-hmm. Like, like it was his fault that they right. went there instead. But, um, but here he's just like, yeah, we'll help, whatever. Let's go wherever you gotta go. The cops load the lady into Trabuco's back seat with her hippie husband, and they follow the cops down the road to the nearest ER. On the way, Clooney tells the couple they should name their baby after this amazingly selfless man driving them. Instead of a hospital, the cops end up leading them directly to the Zuckerbrock Clinic. Wait a second, officer. You don't understand something. This is a sex clinic. We don't deal with a finished product here. I don't give a shit. Get her out of my car. Clooney climbs out of the car with the flowers he brought for Celia and asks Trabuco to come in with him. No. Well, I do like as Jack Lemmon gets out of the back seat, he looks back there and just goes, oh, what a mess. Yeah. (laughs) At the front counter, Clooney explains who he's here to see and gets paperwork to fill out and told to wait. The baby is born healthy and the hippie dad celebrates by offering joints to the cops that escorted them here. He sings happy birthday to the kid and we learn its name will be Elvis Jr., Clooney wanders around the building looking for his wife and passes several Kama Sutra paintings framed in the hall. He sneaks into one of Zuckerbrot's lectures. Premature ejaculation means always having to say you are sorry. Zuckerbrot says that some people prevent ejaculation by keeping a bucket of ice water beside the bed to dip their toes in. Clooney ducks back into the hall in search of Celia, and a live-in patient runs by with his rapidly deflating blow-up fiancé. He's no help. Eventually, he finds Celia in the library studying. Celia is being played by Paula Prentice and is annoyed to see Clooney here. He accuses her of looking at porn here in the library, and she assures him that it is a science. She informs him that there are 89 erogenous zones on the female body, and we get a half second of Clooney trying to count them on his fingers (laughs) before he launches back into his argument. He accuses her of being brainwashed by the sex guru. Not totally. I've only reached the fourth plateau. Fourth what? Dr. Zuckerberg's theory of sexual awareness. A few lucky ones make it all the way up to the ninth plateau. 
What's happening up there? The ultimate orgasm. Oh, I knew it. I knew that was coming. The O word. That's when the earth moves and the sky bursts open and the white hot flames consume you. Now, that's enough. I don't want to hear anymore. Clooney finally loses his temper on the crowd studying porn all around him and Celia has to drag him out of the room. Actress Frances Bay is among the angry researchers. Yeah. <laughs> up yours, buster! <laughs> out in the hall, Clooney notices people are skinny dipping in a pool just outside and then notices Celia's wedding ring is missing and she says she had it melted down into a charm for a Hugo Zuckerbrot. This son of a bitch is wearing my wedding ring around his neck! He tries to drag her back home to give the marriage one more chance, even promising to try the bucket of ice trick by the bed. She tells him she wants a divorce and he says it won't be necessary. Yeah, like he he his offer was like it's like trying to describe their marriage for twelve years. It's like, well, they were all good years. We had a couple of good weeks in there. Yeah, it's like, what is it that you're fighting? Yeah, for, why exactly? are you so excited to get back to this? There'll be no divorce because a widow doesn't need a divorce. On the way out, he passes the man with the deflated fiance. They couldn't save her. She's gone. On the way back to the courthouse and the Ramona Hotel. Trabuco hears on the radio that a roadblock is diverting drivers around the courthouse. He comes up with an excuse to be let through the blockade. He buckles on a priest's collar and pulls out a holy Bible. When Hubris leans into his car, he says he's on his way to deliver last rites to a dying parishioner in his Irish accent. Poor soul, barely 40 years old. Ah, well, that's the brakes. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. He waves the priest through the roadblock. So... Why was this necessary? Because Jack Lemon seems to get to the hotel without right. any problem. Right, and so well, does Zuckerberg. So a bunch of other people. Yeah, so yeah. It, I, don't I, I don't know why they did this other than to just ramp up like, oh, security, security. It's getting harder and harder to be around this area, even though there's literally only place that someone could be attacking them from, and no one cares about this hotel across the street. Back at the clinic, Celia tells Dr. Zuckerbrot that Clooney is planning to kill himself, and if he does, CBS will do a very negative story on this whole facility. We can't let anything like this happen. We've reached the fourth plateau. Zuckerbrot agrees to come with her to prevent the man's suicide. Back in the hotel, Trabuco takes a peek down the laundry chute and tosses a coin into it to listen to how far it goes. When the coin hits the floor in the laundry room, the maid from earlier collects it and thanks the tube. Muchas gracias! He returns to his room and starts the whole process over of assembling the rifle to take aim at the courthouse. Downstairs, Clooney steps into the gift shop in the lobby to buy a bottle of butane. How many of those do you got? Um, five dozen. I'll take them all. You are a heavy smoker, aren't you? And I wanted him to say, about to be. <laughs> Trabuco puts his crosshairs in the narrow path between the lines of police outside the courthouse. Suddenly, he hears a pop next door, takes down the gun, and rushes through the adjoining door once again to find Clooney pouring himself a glass of champagne in his room. You okay? Fine. Care for a little warm champagne? Do you guys recall the last time we had a character mistake the sound of champagne popping for Jack Lemon killing himself? Was it that one where they went on vacation in New York? No. Was it the one where he's like celebrating his life? What was that called? Oh, um, dedication. No, something like that. Oh, that's a, so that's close. synonymous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, tribute. There you there go. You go. <laughs> that's how my brain files things. <laughs> Synonyms. <laughs> Perfect. Cheers, 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 cheers. Jesus, Scotty. What's the matter with you? You look a little odd to me, pal. Well, I always look this way when my heart stops. What the hell are you doing, Scotty? Opening a bottle of champagne. I find champagne and orange juice makes breakfast a little more yeah. festive. Clooney announces to Trabuco that he is going to take all this butane on the roof and set himself on fire before jumping off. You can 
So great. Uh, I wish he said this stuff more often. Trabuco tries to chase Clooney toward the fire escape, and Clooney drops the bathroom window on Trabuco's neck behind him, pinching him in place. When Clooney returns to open the window, Trabuco falls dazed back into the bathroom. He drags the man to the bed. Across the street, Hubris tells the cops to prepare for Gambola's arrival. One of them gets a call from another cop who spotted Clooney's brief presence on the fire escape. They wonder aloud if it's the same guy who was walking along the ledge earlier, and Hubris is furious that nobody mentioned this before. He marches into the hotel to demand the names of everybody on the third floor, just as Zuckerbrot and Celia pull up out front, somehow having circumvented the roadblock as well. The receptionist gives Hubris cards for each of the third floor guests. Yes, Captain, something wrong? Oh, just that one of your guests keeps climbing around on the outside of the building, that's all. That's very unusual. That is that guy in 359 who tried to hang himself. Hang himself? I saw it. And you didn't report it? 359, Victor Clooney. That's the Joker. Right on cue, Dr. Zuckerbrot bursts in looking for Clooney, introducing himself as a doctor and warning that Clooney is dangerously suicidal. Hubris agrees to let Zuckerbrot check on the man alone and returns to the courthouse without him. Up in the room, Clooney uses Trabuco's bathroom to wet a towel and comes back to find Zuckerbrot preparing a syringe of Thorazine for the man in bed, who he assumes is Clooney. The actual Clooney makes no effort to clear up the confusion and even helps the doctor stab a needle into the ass cheek of his alleged best friend in the world. The doctor explains that Clooney must be sedated and committed to an asylum for suicidal tendencies. He also admits that Clooney is much handsomer and better endowed than he expected. (laughs) (laughs) We learn here that in their 12 years together, they had sex twice a week and his wife never experienced an orgasm. Celia comes rushing into the room with a straitjacket for her husband and is confused to see a different sedated man on the bed. Clooney pops out to surprise his wife and confronts her with all the innermost secrets she's shared with this quack. He accuses her of probably having told him that he wet the bed until he was 11. The bed wetter. Aha, that explains everything. Clooney grabs Zuckerbrot by the collar and yanks open his shirt to take his wedding ring back, at which point he finds it's been melted into the shape of an erect penis. Oh my god, it's the P word. (laughs) (laughs) Celia and Zuckerbrot storm out together just as Trabuco is waking up from his Thorazine nap. That was pretty quick. He processed this stuff like a champ. He has 20 minutes before he needs to take out the target in front of the courthouse. Clooney explains to Trabuco everything he's just been through, and Trabuco is furious that Clooney let someone sedate him. They try to wake him up quickly with cold water and face slaps, but it's not enough. A pair of police helicopters and several cruisers pull up to Daisy Valley Meat Incorporated to collect the witness, Gambola, from a meat locker to deliver to the courthouse. Before they leave, Hubris orders Gambola to switch outfits with one of his officers so that in the off chance they didn't bring enough protection to the courthouse, the assassins will be targeting the wrong man on the steps. Why not dress them all as cops right. so yeah. nobody gets shot at? Just pretend you're more reinforcements waiting right. for the witness. Trabuco decides to wake himself up for the assassination by huffing some of Clooney's butane, and it is unsurprisingly unhelpful. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that going to make things way worse? Or yeah, what are you I, doing? I would think. But maybe you're mixing uppers and downers? I don't I know. Yes. He can't even unlock his closet to retrieve his gun and asks Clooney for help. Clooney is shocked as he watches Trabuco put the gun on the tripod again. That's a gun. Well, what are you going to do with that? Shoot across the street? You're gonna kill that witness. 
You killed the other two, didn't you? What is this? 20 questions? Clooney steals the gun back and tries to convince him that he doesn't have to do this, but Trabuco snags the gun back again and pops it back on the tripod. Trabuco eventually admits that he can't take the shot because he still can't see straight. If he doesn't take the shot, his bosses will kill him, but if he pulled it off, he already has an island picked out. In a bizarre turn for the character, Clooney suddenly thinks he should help his friend by shooting the witness for him. We just had him like pleading with this man's right, morality right. and now he's like oh what if i kill the guy that, that's fine then when he learns that gambola is just a mafia squealer he warms to the idea of killing a stranger with a gun let me do the job you yeah i have nothing to lose besides i owe you one clooney takes over the gun and trabuco tells him he's supposed to kill the witness on the eighth step of the courthouse i feel like that probably isn't super important <laughs> yeah as long as he's dead clooney counts the steps out loud and takes the shot Oh my god! Traumatic! I think I shot a cop. You fucker! And Trabuco thinks his life is over. He grabs at Clooney and they jostle the blinds on their way to the floor. Hubris sees the blinds move from across the street and his men open fire into the room. Hubris checks on the fallen cop and it's Gambola in uniform. He's astounded by the marksmanship of the assassin. They got the son of a bitch! be a real pro up there yeah and i like the cop who was like against being switched uniforms is like yeah <laughs> like thank he, god it's like thank super god they happy. spent good money on their assassin trabuco and clooney crawl their way out of the room and trabuco leads them to the laundry chute they slide down to the lobby and then race to their car to leave on the way out hubris flags the car down recognizing trabuco as the priest from earlier and asks him to read Gambola his last rites. I've got a dying man over here. I don't know what denomination he is, but just to be on the safe side, would you mind saying a few words? Of course, my son, that goes with the job. To give light in darkness, comfort in despair, tranquility in stress. He's right up here on those steps. Trabuco tells Clooney to make a run for it, and he crosses to the courthouse with hubris. Get out of here. Made it. Well, what about you? Never mind. Save your own ass. Will I see you again? You heard me. Fuck off. <laughs> when he gets closer, he sees Clooney miraculously shot the right man. Without any actual religious text memorized, Trabuco recites a collection of Latin phrases over the dying man. Tempus fugit habeas corpus pluribus unum. Ipso facto caveat emptor flagrante delicto. Nolo contendere adeste fidelis hasta la vista. Amen. Do you guys recall the last time we heard someone just mutter a bunch of Latin phrases? I feel like you're using the term Latin broadly here because there's definitely like a hasta la vista yeah, in there. Yeah. <laughs> it's Latin American. In, in flagrande delecto. <laughs> <laughs> but you're talking about the Looney, Looney, Looney Bugs Bunny movie? That's correct. At the last second, Gambola rolls over and recognizes the priest. What did he say? It's Latin. It means, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. We dissolve from the courthouse to an actual Hawaiian island. Trabuco sits outside a cabana with a massive satellite dish. He's watching Terry Bradshaw play football on a TV. Do you guys recall the last time we saw Terry Bradshaw? Oh, crap. What was that? Uh, Smoking the Bandit 2? Nope, but it was shot simultaneously by the same director with a lot of the same cast. Cannonball Run? That's right. <laughs> Out on the water, a dehydrated man on a tattered sailboat shouts for help from the men on shore. They drag him onto the sand and help him stumble up to Trabuco. 
Amazingly, Trabuco doesn't even recognize him from the rest of the film until he explains he took the shot for him. Oh, for God's sake, don't you recognize me, Victor Clooney? The turkey! The piss brain! Oh yeah, the shithead! That's the one! Now you got it! Why didn't you say so? No, 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 no. I thought I was going crazy. Clooney explains he's a fugitive from the law because he blew up the Zuckerbrot clinic and the mad doctor was sent back to East Berlin. So he probably murdered a bunch of people blowing this place up. Yeah, but he also mentions that his wife ran off with the receptionist at the the clinic. I was like, yeah, that's great. That receptionist didn't look like somebody that you'd run off with. Yeah, you'd walk off with her. (laughs) (laughs) I, I also like this concept that Walter Matthau would only do this film if they end the film in Hawaii so yeah. you can have a vacation yeah, in I love, Hawaii. Yeah, they actually went to Hawaii to get this one scene. He asks how Trabuco landed this island. I picked it up cheap, $1,100. There used to be a leper colony. Oh, what happened to the lepers? They moved them out when they started testing the A-bomb. It seems like he's just trying to get rid of Clooney now. Yeah. Reporting the dangers of radiation and sharks and man-eating turtles. It's no use, though. The tide tears Clooney's boat to shreds and he has nowhere to go. The topless woman comes out and blows into a conch shell to announce lunch is ready. Lunch, it is ready. Clooney tells her Trabuco has company for lunch and starts placing his order. Outside, Trabuco tries to convince one of the natives to revive their custom of throwing men into the local volcano as a sacrifice. He sits back to enjoy a cigar and the credits roll. The end. So that's Buddy Buddy. Not sure why it's called Buddy Buddy. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's never once said like Nope. Hey buddy, 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 you know? Yeah. Hell the bellhop in a or the elevator operator in friggin' uh Hudsucker Proxy said it like every other sentence. Yeah. But the fact uh, that there's not a comma in the title makes me think that it's supposed to be like buddy buddy like friendly. Mm. Yeah. But they're not friendly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they don't even develop a friendship. Yeah. At the end, he's still telling people to murder this guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not horrible, but it's not great. No, it's not great. And coming from Billy Wilder, it's a little embarrassing. That w- th- it's definitely a disappointment. Yeah. yeah. I do wonder how long he usually had because he's done a lot of really great movies. And it's oh, like, yeah. did you spend like two years writing all those scripts is that why this one was bad like i don't understand how three months wasn't enough time if that's your full-time job writing this movie especially since it was essentially already written right and you're just adapting it to american sensibilities yeah you don't have to come up with the format there yeah exactly um but uh yeah it it definitely didn't seem up to the usual standards uh i mean i got i got a couple of chuckles but uh, overall, it was like, especially like like Dana Elkar like was really like hamming it up. Yeah, and and that's fine if the whole movie is that way. I also like that Ed Bigley Jr. Even though it's a small part and he's essentially like an a featured extra, that he still gets some funny moments. Like when he's like, "Oh, we better call him and." tell him to bring Gambola around and he's like sure thing and he pulls the antenna on his walkie talkie and it's like nine feet long when he goes <laughs> to pull it out to talk to the guy uh, just like little bits like that made me laugh because I feel like he always stands out in these things but uh, but yeah it's I mean Mathau is reliably Mathau and yeah. Lemon is reliably Lemon I feel like they could do those characters in their sleep a little bit for sure and that's why I think that it, you know it I'm not going to give it a thumbs down and I'm, you know, and it's not going to go at the bottom of my list, even though there's nothing great about it. It's, you know, these guys could save most things just by being in them. 
I think what hurts it for me is that they have so many movies together that I have really enjoyed. And so mm-hmm. this one, right. by by falling so below those ones, in my estimation, uh, is, is a failure. I like the idea of having the Trabuco character being a more straightforward Action-y, yeah, hard, hard-nosed person. I mean, I'll never endorse Bronson for anything, but I would say Clint Eastwood would be fun. I would mm-hmm. love to see Eastwood and Lemon. Yeah, hell, hell, even Gene Hackman, especially because and Eastwood's yeah. like twenty years younger than Lemon, so that would have been an interesting somebody, somebody who is at least actually menacing, yeah, in some way would have been a more interesting contrast. Yeah. I mean, Matthau can be scary at, at times. Um, I'm specifically thinking of the cold open of the Dennis the Menace movie where he kills that hooker. <laughs> what? Um, no, that didn't happen. But it could have. You don't know. You didn't see it. I saw it opening weekend. <laughs> I did. I'll, all I remember from that movie is that there's a part where he gets his front two teeth knocked out. Replaced with chiclets? He replaces them with chiclets. <laughs> it looks so dumb. I, I always forget that Christopher Lloyd is in that movie. Is he? I, he's the, the criminal that he's hanging out with. Oh, okay. That Dennis like is abducted by the ransom of Red Chief portion of the movie. <laughs> um, and it was like, man, he just looks nothing like Christopher Lloyd at all. I'll have to check it out again now. Thanks a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, but that's Buddy Buddy. I actually will probably give this a thumbs down. I don't think this is necessary viewing for me. Oh, well, I'll give it a thumbs up just because, you know, it, it wasn't, the worst movie. Sure. But in, in the, I like these guys, so thumbs up. Um, I'll give it a thumbs up. It, it's not a super enthusiastic thumbs up. Um, I think I just do. I do just like seeing Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau. Like I was just thinking yeah. about how much I liked. You know, well, I had spent a long time since I've seen Grumpy Old Men, but I liked like, that one. Yeah, I remember like it was, it was fine. When I was a kid, it it was just the two of them doing those movies and mm-hmm. like out to sea or. Was it Out to Sea? Yeah, that's the one with them. I think so. And then uh, they did a sequel to The Odd Couple in the late 90s, I remember. But I was seeing these movies in theaters when they came yeah. out. And so, like, at the time, I just remembered, like, oh, those are just those two old guys that are comedy actors. But they, I feel like they were both stronger in the 90s with their comedic sensibilities than yeah. they were in the 80s. Well, and, and they, they they had, a like, a bit of a resurgence. Yeah. I, I, you know, like, all of a sudden, Walter Matthau was in a bunch of stuff, and Jack Lemmon, like, you know, uh, Jack Lemmon was in uh, My Fellow Americans with James yeah. Garner. Well, the, uh, the other difference, too, is that in the 90s, they're being directed by the younger generation who enjoyed their films growing up, mm. where this movie is being directed by, you know, like a 90-something-year-old man right. who had done movies, you know, so far back that it's like, yeah, his sensibilities are going to be a little bit off from what people yeah. want to see at this time. Um, what do you guys have letterbox for this? Well, I feel like I'm going to have it higher than you based on what you've just been saying. You are allowed to have it higher than <laughs> me. <laughs> Got to find it again. Hold on. Okay. Oh. I have it at... 62 out of 166. It is below Busting Loose and above... It's the one with the shears. Is that the nesting? The nesting. With no. The shears? No. What is that? The burning. I can't read. The, the poster's too oh, tiny yes. for me to read. With, with the shears over the head? Yeah. Yeah. The burning. Richard. Sorry, I just moved it up God one. Damn it. Because I realized, eh, I don't like it better than that one. Uh, so I have it at 82... Uh, which puts it below Continental Divide and above They All Left. 
right. I couldn't remember what they all laughed was. I had it right around that one too. Yeah, what is that one? That's the one with John Ritter and and Ben Gazzara and their detectives mm-hmm. following ladies all around the, all the and good falling in women. love with them. Oh, okay. Audrey Hepburn and Dorothy right. Stratton. Right, but, right, right. Which, that, which I will never remember that title associated yeah. with yeah. that movie. No, that it's makes a no weird sense. choice for sure. <laughs> but but just like this movie. Like it's like oh there there are funny little bits in here I can see how this was supposed to be a comedy yeah but I'm just not laughing all the time yeah that makes sense um I think this movie was enjoyable um I have it in 142 um it's just under an eye for an eye and just above nightmare that's so low oh I'm sorry tell you what I'm wrong but that's <laughs> where it goes on my list. <laughs> Uh, the writer-director here was Billy Wilder. He's one of the greatest comedy writers in Hollywood's golden era with writing and directing credits back to the 20s. Standouts include Double Indemnity, The Lost Weekend, Sunset Boulevard, Stalag 17, Sabrina, The Seven-Year Itch, The Spirit of St. Louis, Some Like It Hot, and The Apartment. He also has writing credits on Ocean's Eleven and the 67 Casino Royale before this. This was his first MGM title since Nanachka in the 30s and his last time in the director's chair. The play and story came from Francis Weber, who also wrote original works that were later adapted into The Toy, The Birdcage, The Man with One Red Shoe, Pure Luck, Father's Day, and Dinner for Schmucks. All those films were adapted from his plays and films. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Uh, He also directed a remake of this film in 2008, just called A Pain in the Ass. The other writer, I.A.L. Diamond, he's a regular collaborator of Wilder's on films like Some Like It Hot, The Apartment, One, Two, Three. He also wrote Goldie Hawn's debut film, Cactus Flower, which we saw recently, and was evidently remade by Adam Sandler and Jennifer Aniston as Just Go With It. I didn't realize that was a straight remake of Cactus Flower. Oh, I didn't either. Yeah, but uh, I like both of those films. Uh, This was his last collaboration with Wilder. The music here came from Lalo Schifrin. He has 218 composer credits, including Cool Hand Luke, Bullet, Kelly's Heroes, The Beguiled, Pretty Maids All in a Row, THX 1138, The Earth 2 TV Movie, Dirty Harry, The Mission Impossible Series, Enter the Dragon, Charlie Varick, Roller Coaster. So far on the show, he has composed When Time Ran Out, Serial, The Nude Bomb, Brubaker, Battle Creek Brawl, The Competition, and Caveman. And last year, he was Oscar-nominated for an original song in the competition that none of us remembered. <laughs> uh, more recently, he has composed the 93 Beverly Hillbillies and Rush Hours 1, 2, and 3. Cinematographer Harry Stradling Jr., he previously lit There Was a Crooked Man, Dirty Dingus McGee, Little Big Man, 1776, The Man Who Loved Cat Dancing, Rooster Cogburn, Midway, Damnation Alley, Prophecy, and so far on the show, Carney, Up the Academy, SOB, The Pursuit of D.B. Cooper, and this. Later, he lights Mickey and Maud and Caddyshack 2. The editor here was Argyle Nelson Jr., who previously cut Little Foss and Big Halsey, Lifeguard, Sextet, and so far on the show, Night of the Juggler, Underground Aces, and Choo Choo and the Philly Flash. Jack Lemmon played Victor Clooney. He's C.C. Baxter in The Apartment, Felix Unger in The Odd Couple Movies, Jerry and Daphne in Some Like It Hot. He's also in Glengarry Glen Ross and Grumpier Old Men. We've seen him so far in our Patreon review of The Out of Towners and in Tribute. This was his seventh and final film with Billy Wilder. Walter Matthau played Trabuco. He was Lieutenant Garber in The Taking of Pelham 123. He's Charlie Varick in Charlie Varick, Oscar Madison in The Odd Couple, Albert Einstein in IQ, We've seen him so far in Little Miss Marker, Hopscotch, and First Monday in October. This was his last of three collaborations with Wilder and his fourth of ten films with Lemon after Fortune Cookie, Odd Couple, and Front Page, and before JFK, Grumpy Old Men, Grass Harp, 
Grumpy Old Men 2. No. Grumpier, Grumpier Old yeah. Men. Out to Sea. And The Odd Couple 2. Paula Prentice played Celia Clooney. She was also in Catch-22 with husband actor Richard Benjamin. She's also in The Stepford Wives. We've seen her so far in The Black Marble and Saturday the 14th. And we mentioned in an earlier episode that her sister Anne Prentice was sent to prison for assaulting their father and while in prison hired a fellow inmate to kill her father and her brother-in-law, actor Richard Benjamin. Klaus Kinski played Dr. Hugo Zuckerbrot. He played Count Dracula and Nosferatu the Vampire. Aguirre and Aguirre the Wrath of God, and Fitzcarraldo and Fitzcarraldo. He's also Juan Wilde, the Hunchback, and for a few dollars more. He is the father of Natasha Kinski, who we saw last season as Tess in Roman Polanski's Tess, and so far on the show, we've only had him as the psychiatrist father in Schizoid. Dana Elkar played Captain Hubris. He's Pete Thornton on MacGyver. We've had him in The Nude Bomb, Last Flight of Noah's Ark, and Condor Man so far. He's back later in All of Me and 2010 The Year We Make Contact. Director Wilder's first choice for the part was Jack Webb, but he was not oh. available. Miles Chapin played Eddie the Bellhop. He was Steve in Hair. We saw him last as Richie Atterbury, who can't stop making jokes about Larry Latner in The Fun House. He's back next season in Pandemonium, and later Howard the Duck, The People vs. Larry Flint, and Man on the Moon. So he must have connected with, uh, what's his name, uh, Milos Forman. Mm. Michael Ensign played, or Ensign, played assistant manager, so he was the assistant manager here. Eventually, he's the manager in Ghostbusters. He's Guggenheim in Titanic, so he went way up the line, yeah. super promoted. He's Behringer's aide in War Games. He's a neighbor in the first House film, and we saw him last in Raise the Titanic, so he's in multiple Titanic-themed films. Joan Shawley played receptionist. She has acting credits back to the mid-40s. She's in The 54 Star is Born. She's Sweet Sue and Some Like It Hot, Sylvia in The Apartment, her niece, Grace Caroline Curry, was Mary Bromfield in Shazam and Shazam 2, and Becky Connor in Fall, about those girls trapped at the top of a super tall tower in the desert. Oh, yeah, yeah, I yeah. I saw that one. Like they were, uh, what do they call that? They weren't base jumpers, but there's a term for... Where you just climb stuff? Yeah. Like f- free scale, whatever. Ronnie Sperling played Hippie Husband. He wrote three episodes of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, yeah. and he's Mr. Torque in Cutting Class. Ed Bagley Jr. was Lieutenant Number 1. He's a Christopher Guest regular, famous for his environmental activism. He was nominated for six consecutive Emmys for playing Dr. Ehrlich on St. Elsewhere. We saw him last as a tennis coach pretending to be a cop in Private Lessons. He was Hiram Gunderson on Six Feet Under, himself in a couple Simpsons episodes, Stan Sitwell on Arrested Development. Most recently, he was Clifford Maine on Better Call Saul and Dr. Linkletter on Young Sheldon. I, I really liked him in Better Call Saul. He was, he was, he was a good character. Yeah. Uh, but I always think back to him playing a caricature of himself in the uh, Jeff Goldblum film Pittsburgh. Oh, okay. Uh, where he's always trying to get Jeff Goldblum to appear in his – into holding like – the like environmentally friendly products that he's trying to sell. Right. He's like, here, would you hold the solar panel for a second? Why? Why do you want to? <laughs> he's trying to take pictures, pictures of him. And it's Goldblum as himself too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Frank Farmer played Lieutenant number two. We just had him as another cop in Capricorn one. Tom Kendall played highway patrolman. Number one. He was an announcer in alligator and a clapper boy in rocketeer. Biff Menard or Mannard played highway patrolman. Number two. He was Officer Michael Murphy on the Flash TV series in the early 90s. He's also Hap Ashby in the Trancers films, and he's Dolan in Zone Troopers. Charlotte Stewart played Nurse. I don't remember 
this nurse, but she's Nancy, the mother of Ariana Richards in the Tremors films. Yeah. Uh, she's also Mary X in Eraserhead. Uh, Neil Adams played saleswoman. I think that's the woman who's selling the cigars and the butane in the lobby of the hotel. Okay. Uh, she played car woman in Choo Choo and the Philly Flash, and she is or was the wife of Steve McQueen at the time. Myrna Dell played cashier. She has credits back to the 40s, including Nocturne, The Furies, and Ma Barker's Killer Brood. This was her last feature film. Frances Bay played female patient. That's the one who said, screw off Buster or whatever. Yeah. Uh, we saw her last as a librarian in The Attic Minisode. She's Mrs. Lindley in Amy, Mrs. Lewinowski in Honky Tonk Freeway, and later she shows up in Blue Velvet, Big Top Peewee, Twins, Arachnophobia, and Critters 3, but she's likely best known as Grandma in Happy Gilmore. She was in uh, In the Mouth of Madness. Oh, right. She's uh, the, she... the woman at the behind the counter, right? Right, right. But she's her character name is Pikmin, as in Pikmin's model. Right, yeah. And she's, like, kicking her dead husband on the yeah. ground. <laughs> uh, Billy Beck played Gentleman. He was the old man in Mystery Men, and he's Can Man in The Blob remake. Lorna Thayer played Lady. She's the waitress in Five Easy Pieces. David LaBelle played Gas Station Attendant. He has mostly stunt credits, and he's presumably related to Gene LaBelle, who we've had in a bunch of stuff so far. I think that's everything for Buddy Buddy. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, you can find all our socials at linktree slash vintage video pod. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Dawn of the Mummy, which IMDb describes like so. A group of fashion models disturb the tomb of a mummy and revive an ancient curse. Along with the mummy rising, slaves who were buried in the desert thousands of years before also rise with a craving for human flesh. You guys excited for Dawn of the Mummy? I am. I, I sure am. I really like the last Mummy movie. <laughs> I like all the Mummy movies, except for the Tom Cruise one. He broke the streak. <laughs> Congratulations, Mr. Cruise. <laughs> we leave you now with a trailer for Dawn of the Mummy. Egypt, land of the pyramids. A nice place to visit. Now I'm going to be clear sailing all the way. Yeah, that's right. But would you want to die there? Dawn of the Mummy. Sephiramun, ancient pharaoh of Egypt, has slept for 3,000 years. A mummy in an undiscovered tomb. <laughs> Only now to be awakened by invaders searching for his forbidden treasure. Dawn of the Mummy. Terror have these young Americans brought upon themselves. How will they escape the Pharaoh's deadly wrath? His armies rising from beneath the ageless sands to avenge their master's honor. Stop him. There is nowhere to hide. They just keep coming. Armies of the living dead, thirsting for blood. (laughs) 
They are everywhere, and their quest for vengeance knows no limits. Try to stop them. No! But you can't escape from the dawn of the mummy.